Well, I don't think teenagers are the only ones that like candy and snacks. Middle-aged men do too. In fact, I think we should put a sign-up list out and let's make it 160 at their house next uh, Tuesday, is it? Yeah, we could all show up, really put the pressure on. Well, good morning. My name is Ron Toby. I've been here at this church since almost its beginning and have the privilege to share with you this morning. In the holiday season, as you know, we a lot of times are moving about, right? And so my family, we went to visit my wife's hometown, Finley, Ohio, before Christmas. And we happened to be there on the Sunday, last Sunday, before some of the family celebrations. And so we went to church as a group, and, and everybody was out in their green and their red, and even the little kids dressed up, and, and the church was packed. And the pastor that morning when it was this time for the sermon, he chose to have a time where the kids, and some of us have a tradition in our church life where this would happen. He'd call all the kids up to the stage. And so that took about 10 minutes just to get the kids, and they have a double-story loft in this church, and they all come down here and and just fun. The congregation's loving it because grandkids and kiddos, and they're making funny noises, and it's all happening. And he's got about 80 kids up there. It's a, it's a prolific church, we might say. And uh, he's telling the story. And his, his sermon that morning is going to be on uh, the shepherds from the Christmas story. And he's telling us, the congregation, along with the kids, about the shepherds and we're learning. And, and then he wants some interaction with the children, right? And this is when it's going to get good. And he asked the question, now, now children, who, who was it? that announced to the shepherds that there was a new king, and, you know, a lot of them, angels, angels, yeah, yeah, that's good. And and who was it that sent the angels? God, God, many of them spilled that out. But then he got to a question that uh, I'll always remember. He said, uh, okay, now we've talked about shepherds there being the protectors of the sheep and how they are strong And they have to withstand a lot of challenges from those things that they have to defend their sheep from. So they're protectors and they keep the sheep safe. And God, God is a shepherd. He calls himself a shepherd in the scripture. And he does the same thing. He protects and he guards and he defends. And he says, so children, where do you go when you don't feel safe? And one boy in the back says, Florida! What? Florida. That was the answer. I don't think anybody paid attention to anything else the rest of the morning. We were all laughing over the boy who shouted Florida. It was his one word. And today I want to talk about a word. Maybe one word it'll end up being for you. There's a book I borrowed from my daughter. It's called One Word That Will Change Your Life. And in the front cover, it says this, you only need one. What if one thing could improve your life in incredible ways? What if one word could mean the difference between repeated failure and newfounded success? One word that will inspire you to simplify your life and work by focusing on just one word for the entire year. That's right, one word. It can create clarity, power, passion. And life change. Each year, resolutions are rarely kept, and goals are often easily forgotten. 
But one word sticks. By living a single word that is meant for you, you'll find renewed purpose and meaning throughout the year. Well, I think it's a little overstated. One word may not have the dramatic power as the inside front cover of that book. But I do think there's a good idea when we can attach the word to our relationship with God. And I know for me, long before that book was published, I kind of adopted that for this time of the season of year for me. In this time where we're moving from one calendar year to the next. It's a great time of rethinking, refreshing, resolving, as we awful say, with our New Year's resolutions. I've had words in my background. I remember back one of the early ones that really meant a lot to me was this word called adoption. And I kind of embraced that word because as a young, new Christian in college, I started reading the Bible and it talked about adoption in a way that that's a privileged opportunity for every man, woman, and child that they can choose to be adopted into God's family. And because I was actually adopted as a young three-week-old baby to my mother and father, that meant a lot to me. And so I kind of adopted that word as something I wanted to know more richly and deeply. Uh, later on, I came to a word called empathy. Now, this word was different in that it was something I did not have. I have a wife and three daughters. And I had been not really good at embracing their feelings validating their feelings when they were expressed, their hurts, their emotions. I know it's stereotypically, but as a guy, I would just logic it. That's not logical to feel that way. You don't need to feel that. Hello? That doesn't work with a wife and three daughters. And so I adopted that word as a way to help to improve myself, to be more what they needed me to be, And to help me tune in with God's empathy toward us as we have the emotions, the feelings, the experiences that we want to go to him about. I wanted to be that for my wife and daughters. I've adopted a word called with for a period of time. With comes from a book where the author speaks to this whole idea that God really wants us to be with him as our primary posture of relationship with him. Even more than being for him or getting things from him, or living under him, or being over him. The idea of with became very meaningful as my primary posture with God. But then there's one word that overarchs basically my whole Christian life. And that's the one I want to talk about this morning. I read the scriptures through from front to back, way back when, and tried to really see some threads that were common throughout the whole scripture. And this one really became apparent to me. It's the theme of remember or remembering. God is all about wanting us to be people who remember. And in 2018, you probably can go back and remember a lot of things. Maybe you got a new job. Maybe there was a uh, faith commitment or a baptism that you enjoyed in your experience or with that of somebody you loved. Uh, There's tough things that we remember, a loss of a family member. Maybe you had a deepened level of understanding, a fresh perspective on some life issue. Maybe you went on a mission trip and you'll always remember that. Maybe you had a victory over a, a, a habit or an addiction that's plagued your life, but you got 
into a new place this year. And you're going to remember 2018 as significant in that regard. That's great. I know for me, we had a couple big things happen in this very month of December for our family. My oldest daughter said, Dad, you're going to be a grandpa. I get to be a grandpa for the first time next year, but it was announced this year. A new granddaughter is due to us in May. And then just two nights ago, my middle daughter got engaged to be married. And so we're also going to get a son-in-law for a second time in our family. We're going to remember 2018 and 19 for these precious events that are going to happen in our lives. But biblically, this idea of remembering goes much deeper than just the casual way we often use the word remember. And I want to speak to that. You see, we often use it as recall, recalling information or things that have happened, much like the illustrations I just give. Or we think of it as a reminiscing, going back in time and reliving and reconnecting to those things that were precious to us. In our past. And certainly that is a dimension of remembering. But in the Bible, God talks about it in a deeper way. And it's like this. It's, it's more of an active keeping in mind. A retaining in thought for the present. It's an intentional type of taking into account for the action you're going to do in the now. It's a kind of a live linking to the past that's not forgotten, that stays readily available and connected to the very actions and the being that you are. It relates to the present and the future. And if I could illustrate this, I I couldn't believe it. I knew God was in this Sunday morning because this gentleman right here walked in right before the music set was stopping and Andy was coming. He's got Cleveland Browns gear on. Thank you very much for being here this morning. This man is not a plant, but I knew I could go ahead with this story in a Bengal city. As a Browns fan, I'm going to illustrate this idea of remembering. There's this guy named Baker Mayfield. You may have heard of him. It's made all of us Browns fans feel a lot better. And you see, he's going to give some challenge to Bengals coaching in the years to come, I think. Browns fans have been wrong before, but I'm confident to say it publicly from the stage. And if we were to talk about remembering in regard to Baker Baker Mayfield... The limited way we could talk about it, the way that's not as deep biblically, would be we could say that the coach would say to the players in the years to come as they play him twice a year, hey, Baker Mayfield, he's number six. All right. Hey, Baker Mayfield, he's six foot one. Well, that's, that's information that we can remember. Hey, Baker Mayfield, he won the Heisman Trophy at Oklahoma. Hey, Baker Mayfield, he's the guy that quarterbacked the team that beat us twice in 2018. Okay, that's, that's all information and facts. And to remember those could be somewhat helpful, maybe motivational to the team. But if he was to say things like, hey, I want you to remember Baker Mayfield because when he rolls out with the ball in his hands to make a pass, he has these tendencies. And they should dictate the type of actions you take when you see him roll out that way. That's a different kind of remembering. 
And if he would say, hey, I want you to remember Baker Mayfield because on third down, he has a tendency to throw to these two receivers more than any of the other ones. And that should cause us to take action on defense as to how we cover those guys. You see the difference? That kind of remembering forces them to own it and take action. And that's the kind of remembering God wants to speak to us about. A Bible commentator said this way. He said, when man remembers God, he lets his being and his actions be determined by him. The Old Testament is full of examples of this theme. You'll remember the Israelites. They, to this day, the Jews remember the Passover ceremony. The time when God passed over their firstborn who would not die when all of those in Egypt would, man and beast. They were to remember before they went into the promised land, their heritage as a chosen people. They were to remember when they crossed the Jordan River to go back and put a collection of stones piled high that would be a monument that they could talk about for years to come, generation to generation of what God had done on their behalf. Remember, 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 God was always putting it out in front of him. Even the psalmist David, in the Psalms, you'll read again and again if you read the scriptures there, He'll talk about this and this is how I'm feeling, but I remember God. His contrast, his change is always to go back to remembering God so that his present and his future could be dictated by that remembrance. Today we're going to look at a passage in Second Peter, a New, pass, a New Testament passage, where he talks about remembering. And I want to read with you from chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, to get us started. And you've got an outline in your bulletin to follow along also. Here's what it says. Peter writes, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effect to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. And if we took the time to tear apart that set of verses, we would see the word form remember is used three times in that short account. But we have to ask the question, remember these things is how it finishes, finishes. What are these things? Well, these things go back to the very start of the first chapter. And I want to talk about those. What are these things that we're to remember? That he wants us to be refreshed and stirred up about. To have intentionality, readiness, diligence to remember. Well, these three things is the outline of what I'll talk about today. We are to remember who God is. Remember what he's done. And remember who we or you are in him. I've found that if I really live a life that remembers in the sense that God speaks about it to where I really draw it up into present day, I will live the best Christian life. If I center on this one word, remembering who he is, what he's done, and who we are in him. So who he is? Who is God? 
Well, let's read Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You see, he hinges what he wants them to know to this idea that they should be in knowledge of God, know him. And that word is an interesting word in the New Testament. It's the word that we would use for physical intimacy in a bond relationship. It's that deep. It's that connected. And this knowledge of God, he feels, is the foundation to everything that builds upon for their relationship and where they want to go. His attributes, his character qualities, him as a relational being. And I stole something from my house this morning. I didn't really stole it. I got permission. But this is the engagement ring that was put on my daughter's finger two nights ago. And she likes it. She loves the way it uh, sparkles, and maybe I'm hitting the lights right, and you can even see that. But it, it, it glows. It sparkles. And a diamond, if you've ever researched them, they have many different facets, faces, sides, that if you turn it, it's going to give you a different effect in all kinds of different ways. And there's a certain quality and beauty about a diamond. It's unique in its face and its sides. It becomes increasingly brilliant. And you're drawn in to gaze at it and explore it, especially if you've just recently gotten engaged. It sparkles. It reflects. It brings a sense of ah, wonder and awe. That's exactly how it should be with God for us. You see, he has so many different facets. They're beautiful. They're brilliant. They sparkle. They should amaze us. They should put us in awe. If we really step back and think about what do I know about this true God? One author once said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me say that again. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You see, if we think wrongly about God, if we think he's like a father that was not the utmost of a father in our human life, we're going to miss really who he is. If we take on false teaching, and the book of Second Peter is really speaking to people who are starting to get affected by false teaching in this person particular gathering we will be off center on god and who he really is it's so important to know who god is and i wanted to just take consideration of two attributes this morning we could spend weeks talking about god and his various attributes as they're called out in the scripture and one of them would be the fact that he's unchanging Peter doesn't talk about it directly in this passage, but underlying his whole book is that he wants his readers to have the confidence that this God that I'm talking to you about, that I want you to know intimately, he will not change. Oh, he'll accommodate change in human life 
and in time, but he sets above time. And he will never change. He'll be the same reliable God in character as he's always been. See, he's a being without any becoming. He does never improve or worsen. He's not influenced by time. That's why the Bible in many places calls him the rock. Steady, secure, can be counted upon, can be leaned upon. And, and I had a video for you. It's not going to work. That's 0 for 2 on videos this morning. It was going to be a one-minute clip from Billy Graham, who, as we remember, this past year died in February. And as a way to honor him and his great preaching throughout the world in all of his life, I wanted to show one clip of him talking about his perspective of God being a God who never changes. And he's got that great, rich, preaching southern accent, but we're not going to get to hear it this morning. Another attribute of God is his grace. His grace. And it does talk about that in the lead-up in Second Peter. It talks about the grace of God being part of the connection to this knowledge we should have. In God's grace, I'd like to give three fresh definitions to it. This, this whole idea of his grace is kind of the rock bed of the gospel message that most of us probably here have understood and have accepted as our way to be in relationship with God. For without it, we, we could never have a relationship with God. Try these on as a fresh way for you to remember the word grace. Grace being the free favor of God to the undeserving. Grace is God's goodness directed toward human fault and deficiency. God's grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. God's grace is amazing. There's a very famous song that's entitled just that. You see, the way we've got to remember it, though, is those words as you see in them, you see, they, they talk about a God who gives, that the direction of the grace is coming from God to us. It's given. And if you're still trying to figure out who is this God, and maybe you're visiting, it's the holidays, and you're at this church today just because you're coming with family, I would want you to know about God's grace. Because it is the most beautiful thing that accommodates a relationship between us and God. You see, if I could illustrate it, it would be as if most of the world and most religions perceive God this way, as if it was an arrow reaching up to this unknowable cosmic other. And if you behave well enough or you, if you get above the curve on most people in terms of behavior, being good, honoring God, then one day... When we pass from this life, he'll accept you. You'll have passed the curve. You'll have done enough good things reaching up to God. And that actually is false. Absolutely false. The Bible talks about it being God, the arrow comes this way. And you and I sit only in the position of being able to receive a grace, a undeserving gift, an acceptance, a ridding of our fault and deficiency from God reaching down to us. It's nothing we can do. 
We can only take the gift that he wants to give through Jesus Christ. There's a passage in Jeremiah that talks about the fact that knowing God is the very best thing for us. It says this, this is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You see some more attributes listed there. But God wants us to be, in a sense, almost boastful in our own spirit that I know God. I have the privilege of knowing God because he reached down in his grace to accept me to himself. We must remember who God is. Secondly, we're called to remember what he's done. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 says this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So what has he done? What he's done is he's granted us, it says it twice, that he's granted us certain things. And granted in the sense that it's already done. It's already happened. Another dimension of his grace, when you come to God through Jesus Christ, he gives you this already reality. It's permanent. It's complete. It's everything, it says. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I got this gift in Christmas. It says it's an alumina bowl. Anybody else get an alumina bowl? Yeah, you probably don't want to hear what this thing is. It's got something to do with my being 53 years of age now. I pulled it out of my stocking. And if you had the packaging around it, which I have tore off, it's supposed to go on the toilet bowl of my bathroom connected to my bedroom. So that when I get up at night, there'll be motion and a light will come on around my toilet bowl. But there's a problem with this gift. Batteries were not included. I could not put it in action right away. This is unlike what we see in the scriptures. You see, God, what he's saying is, I've included the batteries. If you've come into relationship with me, if you know me, who I am, I want you to know what you've done and let it be activated. It's already there. I put it there. I've given you precious promises. I've given you life. I've given you godliness. Batteries included. And I wanted to break down those words just a bit. That he's given us life. Life. And life in that context does not mean just the necessities of food and shelter and oxygen. No, what it means is it's life and it's vitality, it's purpose, it's meaning, it's cause, it's abundance. The word is zoe, life. 
And it says he's given us godliness, and godliness there means that he's given us the ability to worship well. To worship well. That we can know that not only in human history has God delivered people as we sang this morning, and taken them under rescue to put them in a better spot. Not only has he made ahas in human history that I am God, I have created, I am still present, I am still active. He has not only been timely in his constituting of his cosmic plan to save people who would submit under him and receive his grace gift. No, what he's also done, what he's also done, he's done that in your own life. It's not only a story that's out there about God. But for many of us, and if you're willing, as you walk into 2019, he's willing to make this a part of your story. That you would have things that he's done in your life, in your circumstance, in your environment, not just out there in the world. It's about you, your story, your testimony. He wants you to be a worshiper, one who worships well in your life, at home at work, in your family, through crisis, in best times. That's what it means to be godly. In Deuteronomy, he wants us never to forget what it is that he's done in addition to who he is. He says it this way, and this is right in the context of the chosen people moving into the land that had been promised to them. He says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine homes and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something our ancestors had never known. To humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You might say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember... The Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. See, we're we're probably not much different than these folks were back then. We will always have a tendency, if we don't remember who God is and what he's done, to think that we did it. That the stuff of our life, the accomplishments, the achievements, the comforts, When God says, no, you you need to credit me. You have it because I put it there, and you have it because I gave you the ability to do it. Don't forget what I've done. And as we think of his promises, it moves to the last point. As Pastor Jeff has said numerous weeks here, that if we don't take into account the promises of who we are in him, then we are calling God a liar. And he said that clearly and boldly to us in recent weeks. That as people who 
If we've received Christ into our life as our Savior, our Lord is the one who pays the price for our sin and we have a relationship with him, that all these promises that come with that, that if we discount and deny those, we're actually calling God a liar. So who are we in him? Well, let's see here in 2 Peter 1.4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We've become partakers of the divine nature. The idea there is that we're full partners. We have a partner position like a, a law or investment company. You've made partner with God. You're in the divine. Your core being, your essence is spiritually divine because of what God has done to change you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said it this way, Therefore, if any is, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old passed away. Behold, new things have come. New creatures. We are new creatures. That's who we are in him. I like to say it this way. A few weeks ago, I spoke to the men's group at the Chile and jerky exchange, and we talked about this, that oftentimes we like to talk about our lives as human beings with God as being people who are human that are on a spiritual adventure. I like to turn that around. I think what God says is that we're spiritual beings on a human adventure. Not because of any great attributes or qualities of mine. Not because of any great achievements or accomplishments in myself. Because God says so. He says that's my identity. That I'm a new creature. That I can be a spiritual being on a human adventure. If you flip over your handout, I want to, as we close, just look at a few of these things I've printed to you. I've been using this for 30 years in people that I have the privilege of working with. And it talks about who you and I are in Christ. What our position is. It talks about how we're accepted, we're secure, and we're significant. Because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of who we are in him. To highlight just a couple I'm accepted. The second one that says from John 15, 15, I am Christ's friend. We just sang about this morning. I am a friend of God. I'm not just a servant. I'm not just a human being. I'm his friend. I can be in relationship with him. A little further down, it says, I am a saint. You'll sometimes hear people say, well, I, I try my best, but I'm no saint. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. By position, you're trying over your lifetime to behave into your position, but by position, you are a saint, because God says so. Right below that says you've been adopted as God's child. That's one of those passages that was so meaningful to me when I first encountered it. Under I am secure, it says, I am free from any condemning charges against me. That's why Pastor Jeff says, don't be a liar. Don't take on condemning charges again. You don't have any on you. Philippians 3.20 says, I'm a citizen of heaven. Yeah, you might be a citizen of Cincinnati or Mason or Lebanon, but a greater citizenship is the one that you have in heaven. It's secure.
I brought with me this. It's a string or a ribbon. And you know, back in olden days, my grandmother, I actually saw her do this. When she wanted to remember something, she would tie a string or a ribbon to her finger. And part of me this morning wanted to cut up a bunch of strings and give them to him with your bulletin as you came in. In an effort that this would stick with you, moving from 2018 to 2019. That you would be people that would want to, not just with your mind as a reflection, but actually pulling it into your action of life. That you'd want to remember who God is. Remember what he's done. Not only in history, but in your history. And remember who you are in him. Lastly, one man said this way. Most of man's sorrow can be traced back to this. We remember what we ought to forget. And we forget what we ought to remember. Let me pray. So Lord, we centered on one word today. Remember. And we pray that we could take the full essence of the word into ourselves. That it would not only be a a reflection, a recollection, a reminiscing, but it would be a way in which you teach us to bring all of you into the present and into our future in regard to who you are, what you've done, and who we are in you. I pray for my friends here this morning that some would be already thinking about maybe this being their word for this year. Or maybe it's grace. Or maybe it's another word that we talked about today. But I pray that if it's right for them, that they would have this ability to maybe pick something with you that would give him, give them that prioritization, that focus, that clarity, that withness with you to concentrate on as they grow in you and live up to the position that you've given us all in Christ. And I ask it through him. Amen.